ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Nerdtacular 2013. From beautiful Snowbird Resort in Utah, this is the Games and Media Panel with your host, Scott Johnson. Hello. And we're back. Everyone have a good time? All right. Game stuff working out okay out there? We got way more board games coming. They haven't been like fully moved, so during the next big game break, there'll be all that stuff will be out there. So look forward to that. All right, welcome to the games and media panel. Uh, it's called the games and media panel because we had to split it in two. Okay, uh, we did that because we have so many really smart people I want to hear from today that it made kind of sense. Plus, we had schedule issues, so the way we decided to do it is this first half we're going to have our games panel, and we have up here with us Mr. JJ Valentine. <laughs> Uh, let's see, who else we got? We got Roger Altizer. Am I saying it right? I'm saying it right. All right. He uh, works up at the University of Utah in their games department and does amazing work up there. We're going to get a real academic view of things from him, I'm sure. Mr. Uh, Russell Brower from Blizzard. Mark the Terpster Turpin. You all know him. Veronica Belmont. I don't know why I'm looking at this, but Veronica Belmont. <laughs> look, I got to look. Who's this? Brian Brushwood on the stage with us now. Yeah. Nicole Spag. Uh, of course, who else we got in here? Oh, Mike Tram. Made it up. Mike Tram, everybody. Woo-hoo. Willie Dills Gregory. And finally, Brian Ibbett. Or Brian Dunaway. <laughs> I literally slept like two hours, so uh, forgive me. All right. So I was looking forward to this because we all... I mean, who's playing video games in here? Pretty much all of us, right? We play yeah. a lot of games. And a uh, number of WoW players. A lot of you are probably... You brought your, <laughs> brought your 3DSs, and they're playing Animal Crossing in your rooms. Uh, so quite the range, I would say. And uh, I thought it'd be fun to talk about kind of the weird place we are in video games right now. It's the weirdest year that I can remember in a very long time. And... Uh, I want to talk about some of those things, what they might mean for the future of gaming, get some of these expert opinions, and uh, have you guys chime in as well with a little Q&A toward the end of this, uh, toward the end of the half. So, talking about weird years, we have new consoles. For the first time in a very long time, the big two releases are going basically head-to-head. We don't know the release dates yet, but we know the Xbox One and the PlayStation 4 are essentially coming out the same holiday season, maybe a week or two apart, who knows. Um, and if you paid any attention to E3, Terpster was there, so you can speak to some of that. Uh, you saw some pretty weird stuff happen. That was just my hotel room, though. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so uh, Microsoft got up and started around and showed us what they were going to do, and some of it freaked people out a little bit. Sony paid attention real hard that day and said, well, we go on in like four hours, let's like totally you know, make this a mess for them which is basically what they did. And they're coming off this generation where the 360, at least in the States, was a clear winner. And the PlayStation 3 did good, but wasn't quite there and had its problems and issues, but also had a lot of strengths. Um, so now we head into this time where Microsoft makes a bunch of ideas about DRM and about free-to-play and about lending games and all this other stuff that nobody, at least we think we don't want it, right? I'm not so sure we don't in some form. They just did a really bad job telling us what it was or how it would work or relieving any fears we may have had, which gave Sony this big open. So we all know this story, and then a week later, they turn around and said, ah, we're just kidding. We'll take all that stuff out. 
So how I, I can't think of anything weirder than that in games in a very long time in terms of just a weird thing to go down. And couple that with things like the strength of Steam on PCs, putting the PC in a very strong position during a generation cycle, which just doesn't happen normally, not in the last few cycles anyway. So that's a real contender. Mobile is killing everything. You guys all have Angry Birds probably. And I'm real sorry that you do. <laughs> they have a good theme song. But anyway, uh, that's, a, that's a threat. Mobile is a threat. iOS and Android is a threat. Whether we like it or not, it's a threat to existing mobile. It's a threat to Nintendo and Sony's business. So that's crazy, and that's all happening in kind of rapid-fire sort of succession. Um, and then you got weird stuff like Oculus Rift, and, and which looks awesome, and I can't wait for it. But then you got other crap like the Ouya and... Things that don't look so great, right? Or maybe have potential, but we haven't realized what that potential is. So this ever more crowded market, indie development is just on fire. I love the whole indie scene, and there's so much to get. And 10 and 15 and $12 things are not unusual, and they're great experiences. So that throws a new wrinkle into it when these big companies want you to play Call of Duty until you're dead, right? So knowing all of this and how this is just this very quickly changing business, and there's less money to be spread around because there's so many choices for your entertainment dollar. I think it'd be fun to talk about some of that. So let's start with uh, let's start with Roger. Sounds good. When you you're in an academic setting, what are you guys teaching kids today about? And when I say kids, I mean college level students. What are they learning about what it means to make games now, in the future? They all just want to make Minecraft mods. Like, what's the what is what is it like for a student trying to be a video game designer? That's an excellent question. Um, when I started teaching games, there were 50 video game programs in the nation, and today, depending on who you ask, there's about 580 different schools that are willing to take your money and teach you video games. So the question about what is being taught is a good question, especially in light of the changing market of games. The reality is, we're teaching collaboration, we're teaching teamwork, we're teaching agile methods so they can adapt to new scenarios. But the most important thing we're teaching them is how to get games done. Um, and if you went to college, you wrote a bunch of papers, and they kind of sat there at the end of the semester. And the same is true of games. There are a lot of people who make great games that never see the light of day. So the big thing we push is getting games published. So, and that's the beautiful thing about this generation. Um, our students publish games on the Xbox 360 in the indie market, and some of them made tens of thousands of dollars doing that. We've had students publish games on Desura. Um, one of them was the number one game on Desura and had a million views on Desura, six million views on YouTube, and it's launching careers left and right. So the big thing now is getting games made and getting them out the door. And the big trick to that is knowing how to make great games, and that means talking to players, doing a lot of play testing, and trying to go into markets that aren't previously explored. Interesting. So Russell is a guy who makes the content of games better. You score them. You give them depth, you give them artistic uh, expression they wouldn't have otherwise. They'd be static images without a lot of what you do. I'm curious from your perspective what this looks like. From a company as big as Blizzard with all they have going on, they're also hungry for mobile. They're hungry for, for other avenues of, of uh, you know, games. They're back on consoles now with Diablo 3. They're interested in doing more with, um, with Portable, with Hearthstone, and things like that. As someone who's actually putting content into these games... What does that, I don't know, this, this weird landscape look like to a guy like you? To someone like me, I'd say, you know, it's still games. We're yeah. still making games. We're making the games that we want to play ourselves. 
We're putting the sound and music in that we want to hear that increases immersion and makes it more compelling. Uh, you know, I grew up on great movies and movie scores and things like that. This, whatever the platform, whatever the, the venue, whether it's uh, on your phone or your, your iPad or on a, on a doghouse system's PC. Yeah. <laughs> and use the code Henry for double the memory. Double the memory. It's, <laughs> it's um, I think the key word for me is timelessness. Um, great movies, great books, great stories. Basically, they withstand the test of time. And uh, when you think of, um, I'll use a third-party example. I'll say there's a game called Limbo that just made it onto uh, iPad a few days ago. Uh, one of the most compelling sound experiences in a game ever. And um, that has survived several platforms. So I think we're going to see more of that. Um, if there is a logistical part of my answer, it would be I have to be more conscious about footprint, obviously, on uh, on handheld games. Uh, the customer only wants to download so much. At, at some point, it gets to be too big. And sound does take up a lot of physical space. So uh, we, we, on Hearthstone, for instance, we worked really closely with that team to make sure that it, the sound is really uh, a part of gameplay and making it more fun and more engaging, but not just there because we can put it there. So that's interesting because as games become, uh, well, as opportunities become more, um, people are more capable of making games that are on a smaller scale, the tools to be high fidelity with what you're talking about are there for them too. Um, a game I like a lot is Thomas Was Alone, mm. which is the weirdest thing. It's basically Atari 2600 graphics with a few shaders that help it stand out a little bit, but really it's just blocks. But the story the audio, the music, and the voiceover make it something truly unique and special. Do you see... We're always going to have big blockbuster games, and we'll talk about that with others more, but do you, do you think that what you're saying and what you do at Blizzard applies all the way down the line to the two-man team making something in their garage? Well, I, I'm biased because my um, tool of communication is sound, uh, and so I have a very special love for it. But I will say, there's an old saying, it comes from the film industry, that... Uh, while sound can't save you know, a bad movie or a bad game, uh, good sound, good immersive uh, soundscape and music can actually make the picture look better. And, um, and this goes back to the days of radio drama when you didn't even need picture. So I think uh, in some cases with these smaller games, in terms of scope and size, footprint, uh, you know, can it fit on a phone or whatever, um, the... The visual fidelity can be a little lower. The sound quality might be not quite as high fidelity, but if the content is timeless and really provides that immersion, then, um, of course, the gameplay's got to be there. And at Blizzard, we say gameplay first, and that should, I think, hold true for everything. So if you have those things in place, I, I, don't, I don't believe it's a big issue because uh, or it's not, a, it's not an insurmountable challenge. And one of the best metaphors I can draw is, is a great melody. Uh, some of the melodies we love the most from classic games, from Super Mario and stuff, those were written in the day when you could play one, two, maybe four musical notes at one time. The melody had to be catchy. It had to be good. It had to become an earworm. And so that's why a good melody, it works on a music box. It works on a solo piano. It works with video games live with a symphony orchestra. It still brings back that same 
memory. And so because of that, I love working in sound because um, moving to different platforms, the challenges are probably just more about how good are the speakers they're listening, or how good are speakers are people using. Um, you know, we just don't want to, and how big is the footprint? So, Veronica, I had a question for you. Mm -hmm. How much do you like sausage? No, I don't want to. <laughs> 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 uh, I got to come up with a new catchphrase for this year. Yeah, we do. Um, you did a blog post that I thought was fascinating about you and the state of gaming for you. Mm -hmm. And it really resonated with me because um, I think a few of us have been gaming for years. We're really into what we're into. We have our favorites, whatever. But you, there starts to be some fatigue. I'm curious if you want to, A, expound on that a little bit, kind of what you generally meant for those who haven't read it, but where you think some of that comes from. Is it purely that we are just inundated with, with entertainment options and, and gaming is, a, is a, an example of so many choices? Yeah. The summer sale on Steam alone is going to destroy us all, right? <laughs> so, where, so where did your blog post come from? What's kind of the impetus for that, and, and what do you think we stand on that? Well, the kind of the kind of idea of the post was that you know I've I've, I've hit a certain age now where I, I'm finding myself playing video games less and less, and I think it kind of really started to show itself after we finished Game On because I, I found myself in a position of not having to play games all the time. For the first time in like seven years, I wasn't actively involved in the gaming industry, and so suddenly I would have like a half an hour free, and I would read a book, or I would catch up on some TV shows. Blasphemy! <laughs> and I couldn't figure out for a really long time if, if it was me growing out of video games, or if I just hadn't found a game recently that had really captured my imagination. But I knew that wasn't probably true, because there have been some great titles out there, um, especially in the last six months or so. Um, so I think it was just maybe my priorities changed, or I... And then I found myself getting sucked into Sims 3 for like six hours just randomly out of the blue the other day. And right now I feel like I'm looking for something fun to kind of take my mind off of my normal like adult pressures for like a half an hour or an hour or something like that. And I haven't been like really immersed in something in a long time. Have you played Animal Crossing? <laughs> I'm not, I haven't played Animal Crossing in a couple of years actually. The new one's really good. The new you, one's really good? Yeah. All right. You know, I, I suggest... Watching Game of Thrones with an Xbox controller in your hand. Yeah. Just, you know, that's the way to do it. Well, it's ah. tough, too, because, I mean, so many of my friends, even here, like Ralph, for example, or like, you know, Kim, people who I play games with a lot, I haven't been able to see as much recently because I haven't been on Steam. I haven't been in Guild Wars. I haven't been doing the things I normally do as much. Um, like, it's been a year now that I've had an active, I have not had an active WoW subscription in a year. And that's the first time in eight years that's that that's happened. I know, it's tough, right? It's not, it's not you. <laughs> <laughs> Were you about to shake that on me? <laughs> that could be your new catchphrase, actually. Yeah. I love that. <clears throat> so, yeah. Wide open doors, wide open doors. <laughs> this is why these things happen, because I just, yeah, I know. Um, so it's, it's been weird. I guess it's, I don't know if it's a priorities thing or if it's just a waiting for the next thing to grab my attention, but it's, it's, I hardly ever play games right now. I don't even deserve to be on this panel. Yeah. Like it's, 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 a weird, it's a weird thing for well, me. I like that's been such a big part of my life right. for so long. I like the perspective because, on the other hand, Schwid, you just finished Last of Us. Yeah. Last of Us is one of those games where you don't casually get in. It is mm -hmm. a hardcore experience that's mm -hmm. going to last a certain amount of time and you have to dedicate time to it. 
you really liked it, right? Oh, my God. It's astonishing. Game yeah. of the year, yeah. So how hard is it for you? You seem to do this pretty well, but do you feel like your tastes are changing? Are you feeling like you need a more casual experience outside of hardcore games? Uh, you, you know, my, selfishly, if I just want to kill time, it's not that my dorks must die, too, because it's like I know I'm never going to invest more than 45 or 50 minutes in there. Each time you combine elements of first-person gaming, puzzle-solving, uh, tower defense, and uh, in this endless mode, it, it, like that's, that's my brain shutdown mode. In many ways, uh, I don't think I've played a video game outside of Orcs Must Die 2 and not live-streamed it in uh, maybe, maybe half a year now. So is that what I should do? Should I just live-stream? Oh, yeah. No, it's great because I'm serious. Because, <laughs> because into uh, it. Uh, the, the, th- the reason I don't play console games is because I don't have my bros over on the couch anymore. I got kids, and I, you know, I can't go to the living room because you know, they're, they're certainly not watching The Last of Us. The kids can't walk in and see it. Uh, but I go, I go up and I work in the studio, uh, and you've got the, the, the gameplay there. And there is the most fascinating trend to me in the last uh, half decade has been the meteoric rise of people who love to watch other people yeah. play mm-hmm. video games. And now yeah. we're seeing intellectual property debates about, like, who owns it? Does the person who do, does the performance of it deserve to monetize it because they're the ones who did the actual actions? They're the ones who told the story? Or does, the, uh, you know, does Nintendo need to? And, in fact, there's, there's stories I've heard of Nintendo going in and taking all the Let's Plays where somebody's uh, you know, monetizing them and then just, just taking the money from them. Uh, so it's, we're going to see a lot shaping out uh, from that. But for me personally, back to your question, Scott, uh, as that has been uh, what has upped my gaming for the last mm-hmm. time. I get excited about doing the performance and, and, and finishing games because I'm a lazy guy. I'm one of those serial non-completer of games. But when you know that there's people who are asking, how, how is it going to end? You feel obligated to get out there and do it, and in a good way. Yeah, I, I think I, I, I don't play as many games as I used to, but I definitely watch gameplay more than ever um, and I, I kind of play vicariously through others um, and I think that's, that's well, and you get changing. you get like 80-90% of the experience I mean it, especially for story driven video well, it can, I think that it always comes down to the games so something like The Last of Us it's quite a linear title you know you're going to get the same sort of experience um, I think for, for other games that are more open and it, you, you're going to get a personality come through and I think that kind of comes into what we do with podcasting in many ways I mean, it's kind of like when you're playing with your mates and going around your mate's house and watching him play Final Fantasy VII or something like that, and you, you, know, you want to have a go, but he's, no, you're not allowed to. It's his save. My bad, just me. Um, <laughs> but it's, it's that sort of feeling of, of just gaming with friends, and I think the big push in this next generation is, is social, is sharing. Um, all the consoles are built around live streaming, capture. Um, it's going to make it even easier for anyone here to do that, to, to create their own content, to share it with friends, you do that really cool headshot in Call of Duty, great. You press one button, and it will save that clip up to YouTube. Everyone can watch yeah. it. Um, it's, it's, it's really trying to encourage sharing because the reason World of Warcraft is so compelling for me is because of all of the people who play it. And it's that sensation of, of hanging out with my friends, and they're an extension of my family in many ways. Um, and, and that's what the game gives. And I think that people are trying to emulate that, that MMO magic in other platforms by bringing social back into it. Well, in a very real way, everybody up here is our friends or know each other or is at this event or does other things together because wow, mm. wow is one important right. stitch in that stitching. Like I can connect wow to everybody up here, all of you. Yeah. And I think that's a really important thing to be on. JJ, you play a lot of video games and you jump around a lot. Oh, yeah. Jump up, get up, get down. Right. right? <laughs> yep. that a, around, it's like a rap or something. <laughs> um, 
You so as a from a perspective of a guy who does that is like ooh Guild Wars two let's try this for three weeks right ooh another thing let's try that for six right. weeks ooh Wild's got a new pass let's go back and play that yeah but all with the same yeah. people though yeah yeah pretty much yeah it's, it's playing with your it friends is. it doesn't matter what you're doing as well long that's as you're with the, your that's the important bit right that, is that what drives you yeah it is it is and then and then I'm a big MMO player you know and then when a new MMO comes out I want to jump right in and it's also great when we have um, you know, my friends playing with us and stuff like that. Folks from AIE and Mo Ray team and stuff like that. I mean, heck, I mean, a lot of you all know that I met my lovely wife in World of Warcraft, you know. And, and I know there's many other people here um, that are here today that met their significant other um, in World of Warcraft. I mean, and it plays a big part in, because what, what the game does is just gives a means to share um, that time together with people. It's like... I always say it's like going with your, with your buddies out and playing golf, you know. Get, you know. So, I mean, instead I'm just doing it at home right. on my computer and we're all sitting on vent. Nothing wrong with golf, Dill. No. <laughs> I, I play golf, too. And yeah. if, you, if you know uh, anything about, uh, you know, Jay and, and the guys he plays with, I mean, that's a close-knit group of guys who don't hang out in real life ever, really. Maybe every they now kick and then, gear and but, take down bosses too. They're not messing around. Yeah, no, but I mean, they yeah they play every game that comes out. They all migrate to that game together, and they play that game together. And then the new game comes out, and they migrate to that. And the, but it's those guys together, and that's a, a really close knit group. And you find that with a bunch of people who've never maybe I mean I've only met him, maybe Servilia. Never met Friscos, you know, like, but this guy, I know I have stories. He keeps oh, out I want yeah. <laughs> But I mean, like, I have stories about this guy. Never seen his face. Yeah. Yeah, that's an interesting point. So, Shram, you uh, just took a new job as an analyst where you analyze exactly. things. I'm an expert. Thank you. Thank Congratulations you. on that. Thanks. Um, I just want to say it's my pleasure, and I'm very grateful to be able to finally uh, share a stage here with my hero. The inimitable Mark the Terpster Turpin. Thank you very much. I love you. you. I love you, Mike. Nerds. But no, anyway. I'm really, I'm, I'm, I'm really excited for for this console uh, generation. And I was at E3 as well. I've covered E3 for uh, about seven years now. Um, and this, these press conferences, the Sony and Microsoft press conferences, I've never seen anything like what happened at the Sony press conference. Like it was, we were all covering it on a joystick, and we were all sitting around working on posts and getting things up and. Every single one of us was just like mind blown that they had done this and they had people cheering for them and, and how it had worked out. But the thing that I'm most excited about for the consoles, I mean, when we get a new generation of consoles, it's always, oh, it looks more realistic, the graphics are, are better, like it, there's certain things that you expect from a new console generation. But that's not really what I'm excited about this time because we've had pretty photorealistic graphics. In fact, I think a lot of us don't think that photorealistic graphics is what we're looking for. Like stylistic graphics is what we want, right. and in you know individual unique experiences that we've never played before in terms of indies and mobile and all these things. So the thing that I'm most excited about is using that extra console power to do this sharing, to do this social connection, and to do the thing where you can hit one button and your gameplay session gets shown on someone else's screen. Or if I'm having a real bit of trouble. Uh, getting through a certain section, I can pull up my friend's screen and see what he had just done. Or if I'm in a racing game, my friend can show up in a car next to me and then instantly, without changing modes or doing anything differently, we're racing against each other. And I think that is where this, this console generation's power is going to come from, and I think it's what's going to really change in this console generation is it's not going to be you put a disc in and you play your game 
or you join a multiplayer game and you play that, it's going to be this experience that you sort of share. And even, you know, we were talking about the Street Pass stuff and the Animal Crossing stuff. Like, that's already kind of shown up in the generation of, of things that we're seeing. So I'm really excited. I am playing quite a bit, and uh, I'm really excited to see what these two new consoles look like and the way they, they work together. So. so that social bit is interesting because, so take my co-host on the final score here. Nicole picks up a game, and she beats it to hell and back. She doesn't mess around. Like, she will beat that game, and we always know she will, and I'll be behind. I still haven't finished Borderlands 2, but you've beaten it and all the DLC. Yeah. And if there's other stuff, you've probably beaten that too. <laughs> Facebook games, whatever. <laughs> So that's, she's hardcore. Brian, on the other hand, two-hour demo, usually. Right. You're lucky if I get 30-minute demo, an hour demo. I'm, a, I'm their worst nightmare. I'm a game developer's <laughs> worst nightmare. I just take what they give me and say, oh, thank you. That was Surface-level stuff, and then you're past right, it. Right. But I think it's interesting how this, what Shram is talking about is an interesting bridge between your styles. So she's killing it and beating everything, and okay. you're not. But you can have these connections, and there's a way for you to give each other crap online. And there, I mean, there's other ways to do that now on PCs and stuff. I mean, consoles are not going to really reinvent this wheel. They're just going to mass market this wheel. Right. You can take it past where PC people have right. had it, which I think is kind of interesting. So when you guys teach coursework, mm-hmm. I mean, is the goal to send them out going, all right, you're going to be the next Mike Morheim, you're going to be the next uh, whoever, Miyamoto, whatever. Right. Is that the goal? And so what skills do you give these guys or try to teach them? It's a great question. We actually have two goals. Uh, the first goal is that you can work today. So they all have contemporary skills, be it in music or art or programming, um, and they do get employed. We have like a 90% employment rate out of our program. But the second thing we want to teach them is to be ready for tomorrow, right? And that trick is interesting. And what we really believe helps with that is have a deeper understanding of games that we generally don't talk about. So like I was in games press for a decade. Right? And so I reviewed just a million games, went to E3 all the time. And in the game scholarship community, we have all sorts of interesting things happening, like this talk about looking at games versus playing games. We now have fMRI data, a functional MRI brain scans of folks playing games versus watching games. And we discovered something really interesting. And this is the first time this happened was last year. When someone is playing a game, their brain is on fire. Right? You just see all these regions of the brain just lit up. And when someone's watching a game, it's the same as watching a movie. There are three areas lit up. It's also the same as reading a book. And the reason for that is because you're making rapid decisions and you're getting instant reward for those decisions when you're playing a game. That doesn't happen. Like, you might analyze a movie while you watch it, but you're not making decisions and seeing those decisions have consequences. So as a result, all the creative areas of the brain are active when you're playing. So how do we translate that into a consumer product? Like, what do you do with that knowledge, right? So I remind the students, okay, experience is great. Storytelling is great. But what is the play? Because the play is where the creativity happens. And how do you marry those two things? Like, if you look at Bioshock, right? Bioshock 1, great job of really cool, interesting story, really fun gameplay. The most recent Bioshock, really interesting story, but it kind of has a bit of a rub against its gameplay, right? It really wants you to go this certain pace, but then it rewards you for slowing things down and exploring. And so there's a bit of a disconnect there. So how do you get those kinds of things to jive? And then having words to describe those phenomena are the keys to being intentional in making designs. So before, design was about knack, right? How did you find a good designer? Like back in the day, you know, in the Atari 2600 early NES days, who was the most creative programmer? That guy got to be the designer. This is the first generation where we're seeing trained designers getting hired. 
Um, when I first started this, no one wanted, I was told by a VP at EA, don't teach design, we'll never hire a designer out of college. And then last year, that same guy came up to me and said, who are your top designers? <laughs> <laughs> right? And we're going, well, you know. Is that what? a tools thing? Is it just that this is good? Not, not easier to program, but that it's less important for a designer to, to know what's under the hood because under the hood can happen when he says, yeah. make this happen, and it happens easier. Is that kind of why? Well, we require our designers to know what happens under the hood. Yeah. Like we, we say that anyone who wants to, because everyone comes in and wants to be a designer, right? So you have to have another skill, but be it an art skill or a programming skill, or you're not going to work really. But also it helps you understand what a game is. And it's this idea of systems, understanding what systems are and what play systems are. And like you can take a, a great card game. Like you take a game like Munchkin is a great example, right? And Munchkin, you can slap all sorts of different themes on top of Munchkin, and that game still really sings. It doesn't matter if it's fantasy or if it's sci-fi. That game sings, right? And that's because the core underlying system is solid. It is a tight system. And there are a lot of simple games that are out there that are like that. So the key is finding that great system and then also laying over that great experience, that great narrative, that great sound, that great look. And if you can get all those things to jive, it works. It's why WoW has worked for so long. Like, WoW doesn't compare fidelity-wise to so many games out there, but it's amazing still. I mean, it's, people are playing... It's still it's beautiful, and you don't know still, why. It's, it's still, still beautiful. It's yeah. still complete. It still sings when you play it, right? And, and you can walk away for a long time. You go back to it. Sure. I did want to oh add, though, like, I do think outside of the, the actual curriculum and even outside of the professional game developers, the tools are getting better. And, oh, for sure. you know, it's, it's, in, it's incredible. That's part of the technology as well. Like, not only even on, like, a, a game maker level where you can just download a program and start putting a game together, but also Apple's tools in terms of iOS development are getting better. I mean, I made a game, and that means anybody can do it. <laughs> um, and even in the games themselves, like, Project Spark was a really interesting thing that it's coming out of Microsoft for Xbox One, where you can create your own game world. I'm playing Neverwinter quite a bit, and it's a it's a solid MMO. But there's a forge on there where anybody can make a con make levels and make content for that game, and that becomes part of the selling point of the thing itself. So I do think I, I mean, in my mind, this is outside of obviously the academic setting and and the professional setting. In my mind, gaming is sort of becoming more like podcasting and blogging. In that, if you want to make a game or if you want to create an experience. You can go and do it now. And we as gamers have access to all of these crazy, awesome things that people have just put together. And then we can then do things with, like Minecraft. I mean, that's, is it a game or is it a tool, essentially? I mean, it's, very, it's been very striking to me over the past couple of years how much creation and consumption of this content have sort of been bumping up against each other. And I think that's a trend that's very much going to continue. So you deal with Minecraft a lot where you work. Minecraft's a huge part of what the Augscast is and what they do. How do they see it? Is it a tool? Is it a game? Yeah, well, no, we, we, see it, we see it as a, as a platform, really. Um, I think that's why it's interesting when we were talking about uh, kind of copyright and ownership over creating works. And it's a little bit like, you know, there's the guy who invented the chessboard. Does, if I film a, someone playing chess, does he own the rights to that? Like, he might have, you know, come up with the idea of that, but how I choose to use the pieces. Maybe I invent new battle chess where every time you make a move, you have to punch him in the face. I don't know. You know does he still get a, a cut of that? Um, and I think really with games like Minecraft and Gary's Mod and really sandbox games where it's purely driven by creativity and imagination, um, I think that you, you can do anything with it. And, and we do with Minecraft. It's amazing. We can build 
you know, very cool, impressive structures. Well, you, you fill in the kind of gaps with your imagination, really. Um, but we can do anything and everything, really, in there. Um, there's, and the, the community is so vast and so creative, as communities always are. Um, and that's what we see with World of Warcraft, with the add-ons. You know, there's all these just amazing things out there um, that because there's literally, you know, hundreds of years' worth of man-hours available just because there's so many people um, that you can just generate more and iterate more than a developer ever can. Well, my sense is, so I watch Nick, I don't know if he's in here, but Nick will play Minecraft until his eyes bleed or until we tell him to get off. <laughs> and I notice that he's not playing. He's creating. Yeah. He's making things. He's building, exactly. And so, it, it, so how likely is it that his generation of designers, and anyone can answer to this, they're going to rule. They're going to rule the world, aren't they? Because the only thing this changes, this fundamentally changes what we think of as game design in a lot of ways because their approach to it is different. It isn't, how do I make killing that boss fun or how do I make it so jumping over dudes is exciting? It's now, how can I give the player the power to make a thing? And that seems to me to be the future. Yeah. And, and so whether we like it or not, I yeah. should add, because some people don't like that. You know, watching Mateo play games on an iPad, and he has a little story builder where he can build a Toy Story, and he's putting his little character, and he's 20 months old, and it amazes me watching him interact with games and learning at the same time. The generation now, all the little kids in here, they just, they have an awesome road ahead of them, <laughs> because they're the digital natives now. We are the immigrants. Yeah, we're going to be old farts that are freaked out. Schwartz is going to be old man going. But it's our job to provide the platforms to curate this. This is the big thing, and you know, Steam Greenlight does it very well in that it can you know these these new talented individuals coming up. There's going to be so many of them making so many different things. This directly ties into I don't even know if you remember saying it, but when you were setting this up, Scott, you talked you you lamented the fact that we have so many choices now and uh, and and fewer dollars as a result. But uh, what what that fails to acknowledge is that the pie is just getting so much bigger with Mm -hmm. diversity, and it is true that we have a hard time. Uh, making decisions when we're presented with too many options without filters, but we don't exist in that world. We have filters. We have, as you mentioned, content creation or curation is going to be uh, is going to grow along with the continuous divergence. That's also a problem for me, though. I'll sit there and look at my Steam library for like 20 minutes and just not. I can't decide what to do. But, like, but and so but, I just give up. Was, but <laughs> as that social integration will will solve it for you, because the mm-hmm. answer will be you'll play what everyone else is playing. Yeah. Animal Crossing, by the way. <laughs> Animal Crossing. <laughs> right, right, right. Animal Crossing. Open your go play Animal Crossing. Does that guy still yell at you for everything? If you can log out without saving, he does. He's such a jerk. Ah, he's a jerk. But what's his name? Remember his name? What's his name? Rossetti. Jerk. Rossetti, that's it. Jerk. So I don't know Animal Crossing. He's a bastard. Go ahead. But this, this is not really like a new thing, though, for people. I mean, people want to build stuff. Like, when you're a little kid, you want to play in the sandbox all day. Oh, yeah. You no, the desire is always there. So where does that leave yeah. someone like me who's not creative? And so like, I, I started playing Minecraft. I spent six hours digging holes under the island <laughs> and then went, what the hell did I just do with the last six hours? <laughs> I never played it again. No, I have so, the same problem. I yeah. need my goals. I need my story beats. I need my sweeping music. I need the things that I'm used to. That's why I think there's a division. I think the kids... Nick doesn't Possibly. need any of that. I, 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 I would argue that if you were to play with Nick and kind of start that journey and start building things with him, it would spark off things in your head. I mean, you know, when you're coming up with comic strip ideas, you, know, you obviously have things that come up, and you're like, oh, that's amazing, I have to make that. And the same thing can be said now for, for so many games out there. 
and there's a, like a game Kerbal Space Program. I, I love it because it just gives you all of these stupid rockets and toys and docking ports and stuff like that. And you know, I've seen people build like walking mech robots. There, people built you know intergalactic space stations that fly, and it's it's literally a, a rocket game. And it's just you, you give people a set of constraints, and they will break them and make something you never imagined. And it will always be better than what you could design. So a company as big as Blizzard. By the way, there is an Activision executive vacationing in this hotel right now. I'm totally separate from this. And I went and said, we have that? Blizzard people here. Really? Because, you know, they're all part of the same. I said it was Russell Brown, and she kind of freaked out a little. So. Excited. She was excited. She's like, why aren't they PR. It wasn't PR. But, but, <laughs> but you, you do a thing very specifically to create additional fidelity, layers of emotion, and all the stuff we've talked about before. <laughs> Does a future where everybody's just making stuff out of blocks give you pause as that kind of creative person? Or, or, or is there always just room for the other stuff and it doesn't matter? No, why, why be scared? It's like being scared of art. I mean, I, I grew up playing with Legos. I love Legos. I remember uh, years ago going to uh, my wife at the time and I, we went, we went to this big toy store and we bought like, I don't know, maybe like $800 worth of Legos. Mm-hmm. And, and at the checkout counter, the woman... Checking us, checking us out. She paused and she goes, "Do you have kids?" <laughs> and we're like, "Nope." <laughs> so, um, you know, we both have two sides to our brain, and and hopefully, I think in the in the best of all worlds, they both get to play. And I think, uh, as it happens, my favorite way of communicating is pretty right-brained in terms of how it gets thought up and realized and put together. But you know it. It wouldn't have any reason to exist without this great game, which comes from, you know, a different point of view and may come from people who uh, liked building things out of the Gary's mods of the world and things like that. So, no, this all goes together. Um, I think music made out of randomized building blocks might not be quite as, you know, memorable, but, uh, but <laughs> who knows? I mean, that would be my only possible negative there, but I don't see that as something scary. I just see it's just, it's all being done. It's all happening. It's happening. You're just, you just be there for the ride. Players too, probably, right? Like we want to, we don't want to shun this. I don't want to be an old fart going, well, I remember when I could shoot a dude with a rocket launcher. (laughs) I think, build stuff. You know, know, I think, um, I do want to say that I, I think what's been more, more difficult for, for, just speaking for the composers in the group, is that um, a lot of film scores now uh, happen to be a little more about adrenaline and a little less about melody. So uh, often when we are asked to um, create or you know, plus a, a mood or maybe telegraph something that w- would otherwise be done with a lot of words, but instead we want to like maybe there's a character close up and a little emotion ripples across the person's face, but no words are spoken. And music can, um, can, can telegraph what, whatever it is the director wants. But if, you know, if it was tempt with, um, and the temping process is where they might take an early version of the film before it, you know, it might even be in storyboard mode and put uh, film scores behind it. More and more we're getting, you know, I'm see- this is all over Hollywood. I'm not picking on... Uh, uh, my colleagues, actually, this is this is rampant in in filmmaking today. Um, you'll get three different movies, 
one might be a heavy drama, one might be an action movie, and one would be a, a love story. And they're all tempt with the music from Inception. <laughs> and that kind of paints the composer into a corner. So that's more uh, some of the odd trends that are happening these days, where you can pull from anywhere and put it together, and sometimes that'll paint a But once in a while you get somebody like Hans Zimmer, or you get somebody like yeah, yeah. John Williams, and they, they dictate a little bit of what's going to come, right? Do you feel like that's true? Like... I don't like dubstep, but guess what? The kids are into it, so here it is. It's like that to me. It's like somebody comes up, says, hi, I'm Skrillex, here's my music, and then everyone wants to be like Skrillex, and they make it Vampire Weekend. I can't name how many Vampire Weekend sounding bands there are. But in your world, it's like John Williams was the standard, and then that's what you kind of heard for a long time. Everybody's kind of not copying, but they're, they're, it's his vibe that they're carrying through. And now everybody sounds like Hans Zimmer to me. The same thing? Is it individual artist stuff, or is it just overall? Yeah, it's probably a generational thing. I mean, I, yeah, I grew up loving John Williams, Bernard Herrmann, Corngold, uh, people like that. Uh, and then uh, a bunch of great, awesome dead guys, Ravel, WC, people like And uh, so, you know, the whole thing, you know, good artists borrow, great artists steal. So it, that, one thing influences another. That's always going to happen. All right, well, we have some time for a few questions, about 10 minutes worth. Um, I'm going to do hands on this one. So, hands up. Saw this one first, and then I'll come over there a little bit. What's your question? Uh, I wanted to know what each of yours, this might be too long of a thing, but what is each of yours' favorite gaming moment ever? And it has to be in games, so don't count E3 or watching a Let's Play or anything like that. Awesome. Good question. I'm not answering. Yeah, <laughs> I had one that immediately popped to mind. It's uh, uh, when for Yuna's song in Final Fantasy X. Um, that's one of my favorite game moments of all time. I think it was the first time I ever cried playing a game. It's when she went all the went all the souls. She's collecting all the souls after the tsunami. Uh, I remember being utterly shocked uh, because uh, you know I knew the original Portal was going to be a dark humor game. And uh, when you get to the to what feels like the end on the last test, uh, turns a corner is like now we're going to throw you in an oven, and that's the end. Uh, thinking that that was the dark humor of the game that they would end it like that, I said, you know, I set down the mouse. I'm like, well played, well played. And <laughs> to my right, my friend who was watching me play was like, no, it can't end this way. <laughs> and I was like, well, what can we do? We're going into this oven, bro. And uh, he's like, no, do, do, do something. And 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 he's like, there's the shoot the portal. I was like, all right. And then like that moment of realizing. That the the you know the the testing was only the first phase of the game, and that there was a whole rest of the game to be played was was very very magical for me. That was good for me. It's a classic moment um, as a child playing Super Mario Brothers and trying just over and over and over again to get past the turtles that threw the rocks on the or the oh, hammers man. on the last level. Spike <laughs> I must have spent days. And when I finally did it, it was like this victorious moment, and I was like, I can't believe I did it. I, that is just a really fond memory. A very tenacious, <laughs> oh, I'm going to beat it. <laughs> Mike, you go next. I, uh, I'm not a hardcore raider, but my guild and I, boss by boss, beat Zulgarub, and that was like the best achievement of my entire life at the time. <laughs> it was so spectacular, and I, I've never rated like that since, but, but we yeah. demolished that, and I, we took them all down. And I, now, any troll instances ever, I love them, just because <laughs> it's all grow up. That's awesome. Bills. Uh, Ledge King. Oh. I think uh, Jay was actually there for it. Um, not in the face, 25-man heroic Malagos. Yep. One shot. Yep. Um, First time ever doing it, one shot. 
I was shaking. MMOs provide, <laughs> MMOs provide this crazy, that crazy experience that you can only have there. Yeah. 25 of your friends, maybe just 10, but that up to the second, two mages are dead, yeah. Hunter's in the poop. Well, that, that fight, too, because, you know, you, you fight them, then you're, like, hovering on uh, dragons or whatever, and everyone's dropping all around us. Mm. And uh, all of a sudden, I think there's, like, three people still alive. And that last little bit of health clicks over, and it was just chaos. Like we all just went nuts. That's a pretty amazing thing, right? My greatest memories are from uh, Quake, Quake One, and LAN parties, and uh, we would get, we would have uh, always getting the mods. And one of the mods, I think, was Painkeep, and it allowed you to throw bear traps on people. <laughs> Painkeep fan over here somewhere, right? <laughs> yeah. And so, it, it, nothing was more fun than being in a room with a group of people and constantly hearing them curse you because you, you come around a corner and you throw a bear trap on them and they slowly bleed to death and there's not anything they can do about it. And uh, those are my greatest moments. I love some old quake. It's good stuff. JJ. Um, like Dill was saying, I mean, with, with, the, with, with our raid team, I think when I can stand out the most, um, OMF was part of it, was our heroic Lich King kill. And he was the last man standing. You know, and it was just... Ours was a bit like that, wasn't there? Let's <laughs> well, yeah. Like two people left? Yeah. You know, and we were all sitting there, go, go, man. <laughs> and then just, everybody just erupts on, on vent. Oh, you know, you there's know. all that distortion in your ear, all yeah. the screaming and stuff. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. How about you? Mine's from when I was a kid. So I remembered every game I had quit was either because I won or lost. And I was like eight years old. I'm playing Journey on the Atari 2600. And I quit out of exhaustion, right? It was like the game you couldn't lose or win. Yeah. And like, so it was like you're bored or you're exhausted. And I'm going, it, it tripped me out. I was going, why, why am I stopping? I'm so confused. <laughs> Russell. Um, well, I never considered myself a social gamer. I, I'm, I'm an only child. I'm really shy. And I, I, I was the guy who played Myst and things like that, the real solo experiences. And I uh, actually did not play World of Warcraft until I worked at Blizzard. And... So in immersing myself in that, uh, there was a family member of, of mine who, you know, time and distance had, you know, just separated us over the years. I had not seen, talked to this person very much for a long time, and it was a real, I didn't realize what I'd been missing. And I had, uh, but she's a gamer, and I'd sent her a copy of the game, and I just remember one really amazing night, probably in um, 2006, and uh, we got online, and we just started playing together in World of Warcraft. And the time, the years, the distance just melted away. And uh, it, was a, um, it was a Monday night, and then the server announcements started coming. Uh -oh. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, down for maintenance in 30 minutes, and then 15 minutes, and we were sitting there just kind of cross-legged, you know, in the meadow, just, just chatting. We weren't even playing anymore. We were just chatting. And... Uh, and I remember when uh, the server finally said, you know, good night for 24 hours or however long. Um, I, we, we both wept. And we didn't, you know, it was just really, that was special. And I, I came to realize that, uh, wow, I'm a social gaming convert. It's a, <laughs> it's a good time to be gaming. I love that. Terpster. Wow, I mean, that was right in the fields there, wasn't it? Um, <laughs> I guess, I guess mine, would be, yeah, mine, mine would be basically the same. It was pretty much exactly what Russell said, but it was all in the deep run tram. And <laughs> just, it was, it was special. It was great. You said um, you were never going to tell anybody about that. Well, <laughs> that was between us. It was special. It was a, it was a it was start a deep of a beautiful run tram, friendship. Yeah, the deep run tram, yeah, definitely. 
Yeah, I like it. So we're back to Terpsters, you can tell. I just got that. (laughs) I feel my Terpster impression coming on. (laughs) Nice. Uh, Did we get... Oh, yeah, but I was going to say, actually, I thought of a good wow one. I think it was the first time I got uh, my flying mount, and it was, like, me and Ralph. And Ralph comes up in all of my gaming references because he's, like, my gaming BFF. And uh, just, like, flying around the ground with everyone for, like, hours, just learning how to do it. And everywhere we could fly, we flew that night for, like, it was so awesome. Just, you couldn't believe that you could fly. <laughs> it's nuts. What the hell? So that was, that was great. Well, wow wins then, because clearly mm. there's yeah. a lot of influence here, and it yeah. seems to be but a great impetus I, for I this. honestly want to see what happens in 50, 70 years' time or whatever when we look back. Because we'll be alive then. When you look back. Uh, when I look back, I'll <laughs> yeah. be standing We're all dead, and you look like, back. like solid snake over, over your grave. <laughs> just, I'll be smoking in just, my load exactly. screen. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and just, just how, much, how much World of Warcraft shaped our worlds, really. Um, and it's, it's, I, don't think, I don't think Blizzard can even really appreciate and understand how impactful what they did has, has, has been. You know, I mean, it's crazy. I mean, I mean, for me, I mean, I mean, one of my greatest moments, is, of course, is meeting Renee and proposing to her there as well. But, but was it in-game? Was it in-game? The, the way it was, it was in-game, but we were in the same room, and we were on vent, and we were going for a raid. We, um, we summoned her. In the Grand, that's where we always hung out. Was in the Grand because of the floating islands, and um, she she was like, "Why am I in the Grand?" And um, I'm uh, touring, kneel down, and then she looked over because we came in the same room, and I was there on a the knee Aww. with a ring. That's so cute, you know. And yet and, you said heroic yeah. Lich King when we asked you a second ago. <laughs> but, <laughs> but did you buy one of those expensive vanity rings, or <laughs> no, no, you didn't. didn't. You should have, uh, just give her like a troll sweat in a bottle or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it was, it was actually the rock. Open the trade it, you, window. It was, it, what was that? But, it was but, a level um, green. But saying that, I mean, I haven't played a lot of WoW lately, but I still subscribe because cause that play, cause that game has a close. It's close to my heart. It's got your blood in it. You know, so yeah. it's like probably for the rest of my life, I'll probably subscribe and just until. I, there are people who don't like WoW at this point who, who don't want to play it anymore, who may never pick it up again, but still understand what you're saying. Yeah. Like they understand yeah. this thing. They may yeah. have moved on because of whatever, but they still understand the impact. Yeah. Well, we get it all the time. People listen to the show still. Yeah. Don't play the game. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They, but they still want There's a connection some here. to the I've game. I've talked to a few. Yeah, they still want a connection to the game. Tom Merritt over there. No, he plays. He plays. Tom no, hasn't kept time. Yes. Bob X, man. All the time, right? Bob X. Yeah. What level are you, Tom? Huge DPS numbers off that. We got time for one more question, and I saw a hand over here earlier. Over here. Sorry, that was a good, interesting, long one. Did you raise your hand. Okay, short version of my question, Jane McGonigal. Um, do you believe that it is possible to apply the principles of great game design and engagement of gamers to education? I've been listening to this, adding like the like the, the fortune cookie game in education in my classroom. Can I create that in my classroom? Um, what she's saying, applying, um, creating a group of of engaged, collaborative, creative um, questers in a classroom where kids are really varied. Um, is that possible? In it already Game, exists. Yeah. I mean, there's a school already that uses questing as their lesson plans. I mean, the, the gamification in of New education York. is going to be one of the most remarkable 
uh, elements of the 21st century, and you're already seeing it with stuff like, how many of you guys have played Dragon Box? Have any of you guys played that on the iPad? It is utterly remarkable. It's a game that starts off as a card game, and then you start to figure out, then at some point the cards change into dice with numbers, and then at some point the symbols turn into like the alpha Greek symbol, and, uh, and then at some point you uh, are solving for X, and you realize you've been learning algebra the entire time. And, uh, and it's, no. it's, it's amazing. No. <laughs> it's a blast. My, my three-year-old, uh, or three-year-old, my three, my, uh, well, actually, my, my five-year-old was able to start playing it, and my third grader was able to finish it and got her a little plaque and everything. I mean, it's, uh, it's astonishing what's, how games are going to transform education. You know, there's a danger in that, though, and, and the danger is that if it's not done right, it's awful. And the metaphor that we use, it's like putting chocolate on broccoli, right? It doesn't make eating broccoli any better, and it really doesn't help you get to be a person that eats broccoli. And we've seen this in classes all the time where you replace a grading structure with an RPG structure. And then what kids will end up doing is just gaming the class and not getting the content because they're wicked smart. (laughs) They're min-maxing, basically. Right, yeah, it's exactly what they do. I would add to that, too. I mean, I'm not an educator, thank goodness. But uh, uh, in your I, face, teachers. <laughs> it doesn't, I, I think he meant thank goodness for the children. Okay. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely for the Oops. kids. But uh, uh, the the I do think that for certain kids it just doesn't work either. It's not even yeah. the system. Like like some people just don't learn things that way. And I think gamification. Like the question was, could you add games to education? And of course you can. Sid Meier says games are a series of interesting choices, and that's almost anything you can play with whatever you've got in front of you. But I do think that, especially as edu- for educators, it's worth considering that it, it may work for a certain number of people, but there are always people who learn, yeah. different wi- learn differently in different ways. Well, it's so. a tool in the toy box, right? right? Yeah, it's another I tool, mean, and it's a good some tool. Some people are visual yeah. learners. Some people, like Mark, can just read a book and know everything in that book. So I think it's just one of those things that they will have at their disposal. And keep in mind, when I say gamification of education, I don't necessarily just mean making video games that teach things. I'm talking about the entire process of incentive learning. I mean, there's a reason that you keep on clicking just a little bit longer to level up. And they're taking those applications, you know, badges, uh, level ups, power ups that you get, uh, awards, you know, that's, yeah, and and the kids kids love it because now they really are learning the content, they really are reading the books, and they're doing it for the power ups, which is a great way to do it. Nice. We, I'd insist they have to role play though. If I were the characters, <laughs> I think that'd be good. We were talking before too about how you know kids growing up these days with this technology and sort of just assuming that they can sort of control their games and remake their games. I just want to recommend. Hopefully, a lot of you have read it, but maybe not. Have you all read the Diamond Age? That oh, yeah. book is incredible, and it, it in the book there is a, a device that is sort of an interactive learning unit. That and, and when I got my hands on an iPad for the first time, I was like, this is. Really close to what the Diamond Age actually is. It's so. supposed to go to a, a well-off child, it, but it ends up in a right. In the book, child. it's supposed to go to yeah. a very rich child, and it's supposed to become their like lifelong teacher, and ends up going to this this girl from whose parents uh, get killed, I think, in the early yeah. part. It's sad, but but it's phenomenal. It's Neil Stevenson, so he's thinking really hard about what the future might be like and how it all works, and it's really brilliant in terms of the way these kids, like you said, will just assume that. They, they can change the rules of the games that they're playing. We know that if you touch a turtle that's walking at you, you'll die. <laughs> but these kids, well, how can I make turtles? And maybe I can make a rabbit. Like, they will think oh, in that way. Jump up and down on it a bunch mm-hmm. of times until you get a, a 
Well, device, you're, you're so also you know. seeing kids that are used to touch screens going up to TVs going, why isn't it working? Why, can I <laughs> why doesn't it work? Why can I interact with yeah, this exactly. core content? So it's fascinating stuff. And again, I, I, do, I wouldn't wish any kids to be educated by me, but I'm, I'm very interested <laughs> in the subject for sure. So. Let's see question. how it goes. It sounds, uh, sounds like we're just about out of time. Uh, love this panel. This was awesome. Thank you all for uh, participating with us. Really great stuff. <laughs>